Good morning, how y'all doing? Doing all right? Much better than first service for sure, no doubt. Uh, it's good to be here with you. Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, it's a joy to be here with you. I want to if you have a Bible, invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, the 13th chapter, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do. Uh, it'll be helpful for you this morning to have it open as we're just going to walk through the text. Uh, we're going to camp out in the first 17 verses in John chapter 13. St. John, Gospel of John chapter 13. And while you're finding your way there, let me um, set the scene for us of what's happening here, what we're going to see in this text here. And so what happens here in this text, Jesus... And his disciples, uh, they're gathered uh, together in a room. They're in a borrowed loft here. And they're coming together to celebrate the Passover feast. And this uh, Passover feast is an annual holy day that is used to commemorate how the Lord brought the children of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. And that's recorded for us in the book of Exodus in our Bibles. And so the name Passover uh, specifically recalls how the Lord was judging Pharaoh's hard heart and by putting to death the firstborn of every son of an Egyptian household. But the Lord promised that death would pass over the household of the Jews that were covered by the blood on their doorpost. And so as Jesus and his disciples are uh, celebrating the Passover, little did the disciples know that this would be the last meal that they would share with Jesus. Because within hours, Jesus would be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. And so here in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, our text this morning, uh, it records what we call the upper room discourse in which Jesus gives his disciples some final instructions and he prays for them. And so our text begins with this discourse. And all that Jesus is going to say to his disciples in his final hours with them together, it flows from what happens in this scene where Jesus will wash the feet of the disciples. And it's through this um, enacted parable that Jesus will command his disciples to follow his example by serving others. And that's what we're going to see in this text. And we're going to see that that's the meaning of the text. And it's also the nature of Christianity. The servanthood is essential to Christianity. And so here's the main idea that we're going to have over this text as we look at it. It's this. It's our main idea. It's uh, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to follow his example by serving others. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to follow his example by serving others. The church is to be a community of foot washers. We are to be people of the towel, to serve others. And so uh, this text is going to teach us important lessons about servanthood. And so we're going to move through this text in three movements. We're going to look at this text first. We're going to see the motivation for service. Next, we're going to see the model for service. And then lastly, we're going to see the mandate for service. So motivation, model, and mandate for service. As you can see, I'm a good Southern Baptist preacher with the alliteration for you. So let's take a look at this text. Look at verse 1, John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this opening verse of the text, it tells us what time it is. It tells us what time it is as it relates to the human calendar. It says that it is the feast of the Passover. It also tells us what time it is as it relates to the divine schedule. Jesus knew 
The Bible says that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. And so as you read the Gospel of John, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus responds to certain circumstances that he finds himself in with a phrase of saying, my hour had not yet come. But we get to a point in this book where his hour had come. His hour which would begin with his betrayal and crucifixion and conclude with his crucifixion, his resurrection and his ascension. He says, my hour has now come. And I want you to notice here how John emphasizes the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ here. He says, even as the, the shadow of the cross grows larger and darker for Jesus, his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father. It's a beautiful picture here that without mentioning the excruciating pain and the spiritual agony that Jesus would face on the cross, John here describes the passion of the Christ as Jesus were just simply a, a traveler who was boarding a plane to go back home from an extended business trip. That's how he describes it. Jesus knew that his hour had come and it was time for him to depart back to the Father. And what was it that was on Jesus' heart? What's on Jesus' mind as he prepares to depart from the Father? Look at it, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So as Jesus prepares to depart back to the Father, his final acts are consumed. They are driven by love. Jesus, the Bible says, loved his own who were in the world. He loved his own. And oftentimes we may be prone to think that the love of Jesus is for the whole world. But the love that Jesus has for his own disciples distinguishes itself between what we would call common grace and special grace. Common grace is the love that God has for all of humanity. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. The Bible says, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rains on the just and on the unjust. And the fullest expression of God's love for all of humanity is seen in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You know the text, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe on him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves a world full of sinners with common grace. But he loves his own with a the special grace. And John describes that special grace in our verse, in verse 1 at the end. It says, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. This is not a statement about the duration of Christ's love, because the love of Christ is unending, it's unchanging, it's unconditional. But this statement that he loved them to the end is about the degree of Christ's love for his own. Christ's Loves his own fully and completely and perfectly. And that love is what motivates him in his final words and his final acts. Ultimately, we know that Jesus did what he did in obedience to the Father's will and for the glory of the Father. But Jesus also did what he did out of his perfect, sacrificial, and eternal love for his own. So Christian service begins with love in your heart and not with a towel in your hand. 
That's our motivation. Later on, Jesus, in this very chapter, chapter 13 and verse 33, he will tell his disciples, he says, and by this will the world know that you are my disciples. It's not by your coming to church. It's not by your reading the Bible. He says, by this will you know, the world will know that you are my disciples. And he says, it's by your love. That's our motivation for what we do as Christians, love. So our challenge today is that we should consistently go to the Father and ask him to fill your hearts with the love of Christ so that you are moved to serve others. We are motivated by love. And next we'll see in the text, uh, Jesus models this for us. He is our example. And so in verses 2 through 11, they will record the act of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. In this scene, if was absolutely dramatic and it was disturbing. It is a dramatic and a disturbing picture of what Christian servanthood looks like. Look at verse 2. It says, During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist and then poured into a basin and began, poured water into a basin, then began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So get the scene here. So as the disciples are traveling to the upper room, um, they're wearing open-toe sandals, they're traveling and walking on unpaved, dusty roads, and their feet are dirty when they get there. And so in this culture, basic hospitality uh, would call for the washing of your guests' feet when they arrive to your home. And so the wonderful thing about the Gospels is that we get different pictures of the same story from different writers. And so Luke, in Luke's Gospel, he gives us a peek on what's happening inside when they get there. In Luke chapter 22, verse 24, the Bible says that a dispute had rose among them and to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. So see it, they get to the upper room, and their feet are dirty, and you're supposed to wash the feet before you sit at the table, but they're all reclining at the table. Jesus is still with them. He hasn't departed from the Father yet, and the disciples were already arguing about who would be in charge. And so none of them was going to give up their leverage, and certainly they weren't going to get down and wash each other's feet. And so here they are. They're all reclined at the table with dirty feet. And, and this is the root of conflict in our church. When we become more concerned about who's in charge and not serving others, conflict arises and Christ will be dishonored. So Jesus helps them here and he responds by washing their feet. Verse two, during the supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Judas is here, right? Judas is the one who would betray him. He had already cut a deal with the religious leaders of the day to betray Jesus. And during the meal, at some point, Judas would slip out and he would go out of the room to perform his damnable acts. And to be clear, the scripture makes it perfectly clear that Judas was responsible and held accountable for his own actions. But John says that the devil had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Later on in our text, in verses 10 and 11, Jesus will make clear that Judas was unregenerate. He was not a believer. He was not a true follower of Jesus Christ. And so Satan had full reign in his heart. Judas and Satan were on one accord regarding the death of Jesus. 
And yet, this betrayer is seated with them. He's in the same room when Jesus begins to wash the feet of the disciples. Would, would you have washed Judas' feet? If you knew what Jesus knew, that he was going to betray you, ultimately lead you to your death, would you wash his feet? Let me answer. I have two answers to that. My first answer is obviously no. There's no way I would wash his feet. But my second answer is because I'm a little petty. I would wash his feet, but the water would be so hot I would burn the skin off his feet. But that's not what Jesus does here. I believe Jesus, in fact, he washed Judas' feet more tenderly than he did the others. A commenter, John Phillips, he comments here for us. He says, we see the feet of Judas whose feet were washed by the Savior. And a few chapters later, we see the feet of Jesus, whose feet were wounded by the sinner. This, this service for the one who would soon betray him for money, it reminds us that we're called to serve, but we're not given the right to determine who deserves our service. Jesus says in verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he come from the Father and was going back to God. So, this verse 3 tells us that Jesus was perfectly aware of who he was. He was absolutely aware of his sovereign authority, absolutely aware of his divine origin, absolutely aware of his eternal destiny. Yet, his divine majesty did not prevent him from washing the disciples' feet. In fact, his knowledge of who he was permitted him to serve in such a lowly fashion without having some kind of complex about what others would think about what he was doing. And this is why it's so important for us to never separate doctrine and duty. Christian doctrine and duty must always go together. You cannot live the life that Christ has called you to live if you do not know who you are in Christ. Our union with Christ settles all matters of self-esteem. I don't need praise or prestige or privilege or positions to make me who I am. I am who I am. I am somebody because I am in Christ and Christ is in me. Verse 4. He laid aside Jesus, his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then poured into water into a basin and began to wash the disciples feet it to wipe them with the towel that was around him. He begins this process of foot washing. And foot washing in the time in this day was assigned to the lowest servant in the household. So if, if a man had a Jewish and a Gentile servant, the non-Jewish, the Gentile, would be the one to wash the feet. Uh, children would wash the feet of their parents. Wives would wash the feet of their husband. And it was absolutely unheard of. For one in authority, one in position, one with power to wash the feet of those who are under him. But this is exactly what Jesus did. And it's beautiful here. What Jesus does with washing the feet of those who are under him, it is just a snapshot of what Jesus did in the incarnation. One of my favorite texts in the scriptures about Jesus and what he's done for us is Philippians chapter 2. So if you look at that with me, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Philippians 2, verse 6, the Bible says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. That's what Jesus did when he came, left the throne room in heaven, and came and condescended to us, took on flesh. He made himself nothing 
taking on the form of a servant. But not only is this a snapshot of what Jesus did in the incarnation, this is a snapshot, it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do on the cross. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is foreshadowing for them what he's getting ready to do, what he has done in his incarnation, what he's going to do on the cross. He humbles himself, made himself nothing. And then as we progress in the text in verses 6 through 10, it will record for us a conversation that Jesus will begin to have with Simon Peter. And it shows us just how disturbing the disciples really thought this act was for them. So as Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, see the scene here, right? There's a, a hush silence in the room. No one's speaking. The disciples are embarrassed for themselves and they're embarrassed for Jesus. No one's saying anything, but much is being communicated in their glances and looks that they're giving at one another as Jesus is washing their feet. But no one saying a word. Until Jesus gets to Peter. And if you know Peter, Peter's going to say something. If somebody was going to say something, it would be Peter. Peter says in verse 6, he says, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And the pronouns in that verse are, they're emphatic. He's saying, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter, we know, is prone to kind of run off at the mouth, to speak before he thinks. But this question, Lord, do you wash my feet, is not another example of him running off at the mouth before his thoughts can catch up to him. Peter is inquisitive. He he's wants to know what's happening. He doesn't understand what he's seeing. What Jesus is doing cuts right through every notion of leadership and greatness and authority that he has. In his mind, being in charge means that others serve you. Great people do not serve. And definitely, great people don't serve in such a degrading, low way by washing feet. What's happening doesn't make sense to Peter. And so he asked Jesus, essentially, what do you think you're doing? Don't you know who you are? In verse 7, Jesus answers him. He says, what I'm doing, you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. It's funny when you read about how Jesus answers his disciples. Basically, he answers in a riddle to them, like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, you don't understand now, but you'll understand later. And we'll find out, according to verse 15 in our text, that Jesus was giving his disciples an example to follow, but the disciples at this time and moment did not understand what Jesus was doing. This humble act was foreshadowing the selfless act that Jesus is going to do to bring us redemption when he performs it on the cross. But they would not fully understand what's happening and the greater meaning of washing their feet until after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Peter did not understand what Jesus was doing, but Jesus called Peter to submit to him anyway. And I think this is a powerful challenge for us today. How often does the Lord work in, the lives, in our lives and in the lives of the church in ways that we just don't understand? But we must not allow what we do not understand to be an excuse to reject what Jesus is doing in our lives and in the lives of the church. Just because you don't understand doesn't mean you can disobey. He calls us to submit anyway. Trust him. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart 
And do not lean to your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. You can trust him. He calls him to trust. So Peter here, he's questioning Jesus. And Jesus answers him. But if you thought that that was the end of the conversation, then once again, you don't know Peter. Peter says in verse 6, Peter says to him, you, you should never wash my feet. In verse 8, excuse me. Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. And so in the original language, he's essentially using a double negative. He's using the word never to mean not for eternity, right? Peter was defiant. Jesus, you will wash my feet over my dead body. And so on one hand, Peter's refusal is an expression of how humble he's trying to be. He did not want Jesus to perform such a lowly service for him. But on the other hand, Peter's refusal was it's an expression of his pride. Peter was too humble to have Jesus wash his feet, but also he was not too humble enough to, to tell Jesus what he could and could not do. In verse 8, Jesus responds. He says this, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And this, I believe, is a wonderful metaphorical reference to the forgiveness of our sins. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. The Bible says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. If Jesus does not wash you, you have no share with him. Unwashed people do not belong to Jesus. And this it's a powerful reminder that salvation is based upon what Jesus does for you and not what you do for Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Only boasting that we have is in what Christ has done for us. True disciples not only have a strong desire to serve Christ, but they also have a humble submission that permits Christ to serve them. So in this exchange between Peter and Jesus, it reveals uh, various ways that people may respond to your service. Uh, some people, some people may question your service. Others may refuse your service and some may even try to take advantage of your service and we see all those things happening all three of those things happening with Peter here Peter he questioned Jesus he refused Jesus's service and and then he tries to take advantage of Jesus's service in verse 8 Jesus told Peter that if and I do not wash you then you have no share with me and then in verse 9 Peter said Lord not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. He, this is a wonderful expression of, one, his devotion to Jesus. Peter did not understand, nor did Peter agree with what Jesus was doing. But Peter, he wanted to be with Jesus. And being with Jesus, and if being with Jesus requires washing, Peter wanted the full service cleansing. He wanted it all, not just my feet, my hands and my head as well. And in verse 10, Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, 
but it's completely clean. And you are clean. Not every one of you. For he knew who would betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. That's the reference to Judas knowing that he was unregenerate. He was not clean. So get the picture here, right? Uh, in this society, a person invites you over to their house. Your friend invites you over for dinner. What do you do? You take a bath. You get dressed. And then you walk over to your friend's house. And because you've traveled in sandals and on unpaved, dirt, dusty roads, your feet, when you arrive to your friend's house, your feet are dirty. And, but when you get to your friend's house, you don't need to take another bath. You just need to have your feet washed. And this is a, a practical illustration of Christian salvation. When Jesus washes you in regeneration, right? So when he takes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh and you respond to the gospel and you changes your nature, when he washes you in regeneration, you are clean. But as we travel through this uh, sin-tainted, self-centered, Satan infiltrated world, our feet will get dirty. But as our feet get dirty, you do not lose your salvation. You just need your feet washed. Just got to wash your feet. And you may be asking, well, then how can I wash my feet? Well, the Bible gives us a prescription. First John chapter one, verse nine. If you confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. As we walk through this world, our feet will get dirty, but confession of sins will cleanse our feet. And so Jesus here in verses 2 through 11, he washes the feet of the disciples. And in our last section here of 12 through 17, Jesus will explain the meaning and the implications of washing the feet of the disciples. And so we see our motivation for service is love. And Jesus becomes our model for service. Our model is Jesus himself. And then lastly, we get a mandate for service. And we'll see in these verses here that our mandate for service is inescapable. Jesus commands us to do this and we cannot get around that. Look at verse 12. And when he had washed their feet, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? And so this is obviously a rhetorical question. It doesn't require an answer. Jesus knows they do not understand. They don't understand. So Jesus explains, verse 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. So let's deal with those two words, teacher and Lord. A teacher refers to his rabbinical role. He's their rabbi. He has the right for spiritual instruction over them. He's their teacher. And Lord is a title of authority. So in John's gospel, it, this title, Lord, conveys uh, a divine authority. Jesus does not reject these titles, nor does he say that it's right to call me teacher, but it's wrong to call me Lord. Jesus affirms that the disciples are right to call him teacher and Lord. I am your teacher. I have the right for spiritual instruction over you, but I'm also Lord. I have divine authority. I am God. So to call Jesus your teacher and Lord is to accept the divine obligation. Look at the obligation, verse 14. It says, if I then, your teacher and Lord, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
So Jesus is arguing from greater to lesser here. If their Lord and teacher have washed their feet, then they ought to wash each other's feet. And the word ought in this text, it means to owe. It means a debt. It means a necessary duty. Jesus here is not recommending that we wash one another's feet. He's commanding us to do so. As Lord and teacher, Jesus commands us to wash one another's feet. So if you are not willing to serve others, you really have no right to call Jesus your teacher and Lord. Jesus says in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I tell you? He commands us to do this. I want to deal with this really quickly. Some, when they read this text, they read this in a very literal sense, and they view it as a foot washing as a Christian ordinance, a sacrament. So we, in our faith tradition, we observe two ordinances. That's baptism and the Lord's Supper that Jesus commands us to do. The New Testament gives no indication that the early church understood foot washing in the same way that we understand the Lord's Supper and baptism. Foot washing is only mentioned one other time in the New Testament. It's recorded in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, and it is used as just an illustration for the hospitality of godly widows. And so throughout church history, we believe that this command to wash one another's feet has been, uh, is understood to mean that we should do whatever it takes no matter how small, how minuscule the task, we should do whatever it takes to serve others. That's what Jesus commands us to do. And I grew up in a denomination, a Pentecostal denomination, where we observed foot washing as an ordinance, as a sacrament. And uh, let me tell you, I still have leftover trauma from childhood from washing feet. Let me tell you. So we do not see this as an ordinance but what we see this as is a command to serve others no matter what it takes so to be a community of foot washers to be people of the towel is to continually live with these words on your lips what can I do for you what can I do for you and in verse 15 Jesus explains the driving force of this call to service verse 15 he says for I have given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. The world is not big on servanthood. In fact, the world, it views those who are great as those who have others to serve them. But we must not follow the example of the world. We should follow the example of Jesus, right? We follow the example of Jesus. We should follow his example in salvation, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, uh, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We have to follow his example. We follow his example in salvation, but we also follow his example in suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says that, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We follow Jesus in salvation. We follow his example in suffering. And we also follow his example in service. John chapter 3 verse 15. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I've done to you. So growing up, I was partly raised by my great-grandmother. And she would sew. 
Uh, and I would watch her sew, and she would um, lay out a pattern, and then she would cut the material to fit the pattern, and then she would sew the garments on the basis of the pattern. And likewise, with foot washing, right? Jesus has laid down a pattern for what it's like to be like him, and so we should follow his pattern. And what it means to be like Jesus is to be a servant. You are not growing in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ if you are not willing to serve others. Verse 16, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is the master and we are his servants. Jesus is the one who sins, and we are his messengers. Yet, he, Jesus, serves us. He serves us. He's willing to become low to serve us. And so if you are not one willing to serve or serving, do you think you're better than Jesus? To refuse to serve is to exalt yourself above the Lord Jesus Christ. But to serve is to descend into greatness, right? Think about it. The servant desires to be like the master, but Christ, our master, is a servant. And so to be like the master is to be a servant. The highest rank in the power structure of the kingdom of God is that of a servant. That completely goes against what the world, what our culture and what our society would tell us. In the world, in their kingdom, in order to be great, you got to go high. But in this kingdom, in order to be great, you got to go low. The highest power structure rank in the kingdom is that of a servant. And our servant gives us an example. He washes feet. So if Jesus washed feet, then you, you can help in the parking lot ministry. If Jesus washed feet, then you can greet Members as they come to service by handing out bulletins on the hospitality team. If Jesus washed feet, you can care for our children in the nursery or in Journey Kids or in Surge on Youth on Sunday's night. If Jesus washed feet, then you can help lead the saints in praise and worship with the band. If Jesus washed feet, then you can visit the elderly in nursing homes. If Jesus washed feet, then you can go and spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus in your communities to your neighbors and on your jobs. If Jesus washed feet, then you can go and join a church plan as we send them out to spread the gospel. If Jesus washed feet, you can serve. That's what he calls us to do. But here's the good news of this text. He doesn't just leave us there. Verse 17 if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Commentator J.K. Chesterton says that this, verse 17, is a lost beatitude. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And oftentimes when we think of blessing, we think of, you know, physical health, material prosperity, career accomplishments. But Jesus here declares that the true way to blessedness, kingdom blessedness, he says, is a blessing to know the truth about servanthood. Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The blessing for us, it begins with what you know. But it doesn't just stop there. 
What you don't know can hurt you. Ignorance can be bondage, but the truth will set us free. You are blessed if you know the truth about Christian servanthood. You are blessed if you know the truth about unselfishness. You are blessed. But the blessing doesn't stop there with what you know. D.L. Moody comments, and he's accredited with saying that the scriptures were not just given for our information, but for our transformation. So therefore, the truth of God's word, it applies to the will and not just to our intellect. Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The blessing is not merely in knowing the truth. The blessing is in what you do with the truth that you know. Christian obedience comes through obedient service. There's a story uh, that Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 28 to 31. He tells this story about uh, a man who has two sons. And he goes to one of his sons and he says, go work in my vineyard today. And the first son says to him, I will not go. But later, that son, he changed his mind and he went. And the father goes to his second son and he says, go work in my vineyard today. And that son said, I will go. But he did not go. And then Jesus asked the question, he says, which of the boys did the will of the father? The answer is very obvious in the text here. It's the one who actually obeyed the father's command. So hearing is just the start. Talk is cheap. Obedience pleases the father. And later on, the boy was interviewed, the first boy was interviewed, and they said, why, why did you go and do what you said you would not do? And when they interviewed him, he said, I really meant it when I said that I wasn't going to go. But then I started to think about all that my father has done for me, and I wanted to go do something for my father. That should be the response for Christians. Based off all of Christ has done for us, our response should be, I will obey your command. And we have to obey him in a way that he wants to be obeyed. There's a story in 1 Samuel about Saul the king. And the Lord told Saul to go to destroy his enemies, to go to war, destroy his enemies. And he said, the Lord, I will favor you. And when you destroy your enemies, take none of the spoils of war. And so Saul goes to war. He destroys his enemies. And... Uh, Saul, after he destroys his enemy, he decides that I want the spoils of war. So he has a bright idea. He says, I will take the spoils of war, but I will sacrifice the best to God first. And I'll keep the rest for myself. And that's what he does. He takes the spoils of war. He sacrifices it to God. And then God sends the prophet Samuel to Saul. And Samuel tells Saul, the Lord is not pleased with you. And Saul's like, I sacrificed that. And then Samuel tells him this. He says, obedience is better than sacrifice. Christ wants you to obey, but you have to obey him in the way that he's commanded you to obey him. And our response to Jesus should be, yes, Lord, I will do what you would have me to do. Considering all that you've done for me on the cross, providing salvation, reconciling me back to the Father, for the forgiveness of sins, and he commands us to be like him and serve, and that command is inescapable what he wants us to do. And so I'm going to close with 
quoting a hymn that we used to sing in, uh, sing in the church that I grew up in. The hymn says like this, it says, you may build cathedrals large or small. You may build skyscrapers grand and tall. You may conquer all of the failures of the past, but only what you do for Christ will last. In the end, only what you do for Christ will last. In order to be a follower of Jesus, we must follow his example in serving others. And to that end, let's pray to go and live our lives full of service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that we have in the scripture to obey you. Help us by the power of the spirit to be people of service, to be generous people who serve others. We don't serve because we're trying to get something from you. We serve because of all that you've done for us in response to what you've done for us on the cross. Father, help us to that end. Father, we pray that as the seed of the word has been watered and planted, we pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would bring forth your increase in your people. In Jesus' name, amen.